Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Stop punishing yourself with bland, chalky protein shakes and fuel your fitness with the best protein in the game at GNC. We've got the hottest brands and flavors that legit taste like cookies, your favorite cereal, indulgent desserts, and more. It's on at GNC. Alrighty, welcome to Dark Poutine. I am Mike Brown, and there is Matthew Stockton. We're all full of pizza, and it's uh, we're we're doing this on a different day than it's usual. It's on a Friday, yeah. Even, even though you guys are listening, uh, the ear ones are listening on a Monday, but right, uh, <laughs> yeah. Tomorrow is my birthday, so oh yeah, yeah. We're gonna uh, do something on Sunday, and happy thirtieth. Yes, thirty <laughs> to plus whatever. I oh, wish. <laughs> Oh, to be 30 again. Oh, to be 30. The views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Poutine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of Curious Cast, its affiliate Global News, nor its parent company, Chorus Entertainment. Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Our content is often intense and some listeners may find it disturbing. We are not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We are ordinary Canadian schmucks chatting about crime and the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double and an Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. You are responsible for obtaining and maintaining at your own cost all equipment needed to listen to dark poutine. Dark poutine can be addictive. Side effects may include, but not be limited to, pausing and questioning the system, elevated heart rate, pondering humanity, odd looks from colleagues as you laugh out loud at work, family members not into true crime worrying about you. Positive side effects may include some perspectives and opinions that you disagree with, as well as some wokeness and empathy. If you don't think dark poutine is for you, consult your doctor immediately. On the night of Saturday, October 25, 1857, in Beaver Lake, a part of Simon's Parish in St. John County, a heinous crime was committed unlike anything ever seen in New Brunswick up to that point. Sure, there had been murders and arsons, but those were often a result of heated arguments or drunken brawls. But this crime was different. It's hard to believe that anyone in New Brunswick would coldly and calculatedly murder an entire family for money and then burn down their property to destroy the evidence. The dead were a man named Robert Mackenzie, his wife Effie, and their four helpless children. The perpetrators, three Irish Catholics, Hugh Breen, Patrick Slavin Sr., and Patrick Slavin's son, Patrick Jr., targeted the Mackenzie family, robbing and murdering them. This crime committed on that fateful Saturday night, some still feel, rivals the worst of the murders ever committed in the province's history. 
This is Dark Poutine, episode 281, Beaver Lake Tragedy, The Mackenzie Murders. In the mid-19th century, New Brunswick's economy relied heavily on natural resources like timber, shipbuilding, and fishing. The province was a part of British North America with a political system evolving toward responsible government. The population was diverse, with British settlers, including English, Scottish, and Irish, forming the majority. Irish immigration due to the Great Famine brought a significant Catholic population to the province, settling in rural areas along the Miramichi River. This led to some tensions between the Catholic and Protestant communities with occasional conflicts and disagreements. The Orange Order, also known as the Orange Institution, is a Protestant fraternal organization that originated in Northern Ireland and is associated with loyalism to the British crown and Protestant values. Yes, named after King William of Orange. Named after King William of Orange, yes. He defeated the Catholic King uh, William II mm -hmm. in the Battle of the Boyne that you've probably heard about. Boyne? Uh, the Battle of the Boing. I always think Boing when I hear <laughs> The Battle of the Boing. That sort of assured sort of Protestant ascendancy in Ireland after that. So everything sort of became orange after William of Orange, who I think was actually Dutch. That would make sense because orange is a Dutch thing for sure. The Orange Lodge riots in the 1840s were characterized by violent clashes and confrontations between the two communities often sparked by parades, demonstrations, or inflammatory speeches and publications. These events sometimes led to property damage, physical altercations, and even loss of life. One notable incident was the St. John Riots of 1847, which occurred in the aftermath of a St. Patrick's Day parade held by the Irish Catholic community. Tensions escalated and clashes broke out between Catholics and Protestants. The violence continued for several days, resulting in the deaths of several people and the destruction of properties. The provincial government and local authorities struggled to maintain peace and order during these times, and the riots prompted debates and discussions about religious freedom, minority rights, and the role of the government in preventing and addressing sectarian conflicts. As the decades passed and social attitudes evolved, the intensity of sectarian tensions in New Brunswick gradually diminished. The Orange Lodge riots and similar incidents shaped the province's social and political landscape, and they continued to be studied as important chapters in New Brunswick's history. The Protestant community historically dominant had influence in politics and education. The education issue was contentious with Protestants controlling public schools and separate Catholic schools were established. Despite these tensions, the dynamics between the Catholic and Protestant groups shaped the social and political landscape of New Brunswick during this era. Although there are no provable direct links to the religious troubles in the region with this particular crime, the fact of Mackenzie's Protestantism was well known to his Catholic murderers, and resentment caused by that may have been a part of their willingness to dispatch the family. The whole Catholic-Protestant divide... Mm -hmm. ran deep for hundreds of years. Yeah. So, you know, perhaps they wouldn't have killed, quote, one of their own. Right. But, uh, you know, I was thinking about um, a few things. One is, you know, this story is kind of similar in a way to the Donnelly massacre that we covered. We get to that, yeah. Right. And, um, and what I find interesting is, you know, right now we're talking a lot about uh, colonialism 
mm-hmm. right? And when Europeans came over, and I think sometimes what get, what's get lo- what gets lost in that story, there's a whole bunch of fighting people <laughs> amongst themselves as well. Yeah, right? so the people who were colonizing were also fighting amongst themselves. They yeah. were all fighting amongst themselves. Yeah, totally. it, was, it was like total chaos. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep, it, it very much was. It wasn't some clean sort of, okay, no. you know, monoculture coming over. It's uh, nope. very complicated. Robert Mackenzie was a Protestant Scottish native living in New Brunswick for many years. He was a tailor by trade, but had retired to his farm at Misbeck, which he'd transformed into fertile farmland. Surrounded by comfort, a loving partner, and a large family, Mackenzie seemed to have achieved the dream for many tradesmen to aspire to. He and his wife Effie lived happily with their brood, all four of whom were under six years old. Sadly, the names of the children have been lost to time. Mackenzie was also known as a moneylender, and some say he flaunted his wealth, which may have ignited the resentment and greed that led to his murder. He was known to have lots of money in his home. In the last week of October, Mackenzie was looking to hire a farm laborer. He offered a place to live and decent payment for the work. Not far from his home lived the Slavins, and a man named Hugh Breen from Oromocto, who went by several aliases. Breen went to Mackenzie and said that he wanted to work there and even planned to move into the empty house on Mackenzie's property with his wife. Breen left saying he would fetch his wife and be back with her in a few days, but truly had more sinister intentions. He was casing the joint. Breen returned on the evening of October 25th and lured Robert Mackenzie to the smaller house, claiming his wife wanted to meet with Robert there. But instead, the two Slavins awaited the unsuspecting victim. As Mackenzie entered, Slavin Sr. emerged from a side room concealing an axe. Patrick Sr. struck Robert in the chest, delivering multiple blows until Mackenzie lay lifeless. The group then snuck into the main residence where Mrs. Mackenzie sat by the fire, her infant cradled in her arms, and her other three children nearby. Without hesitation, Slavin Sr. delivered a fatal blow to Mrs. Mackenzie. The terrified cries of the children echoed through the rooms as one by one they met the same fate. After looting the house and discovering a chest containing Mackenzie's cash, the perpetrator set the house ablaze in an attempt to erase evidence of their heinous act and fled into the night. Early the next morning, October 26, rumors began to spread that Mackenzie had killed himself and set fire to his house, killing his family. But as the day wore on, the story changed. Neighbors went to the scene and began to uncover horrific details. It soon became clear that a series of brutal murders had taken place. The initial discovery was made by Peter O'Hara, who lived about a half mile from the Mackenzie farm. On Sunday morning, he passed by the property and was shocked to find the Mackenzie's house reduced to ashes. At first, he didn't inspect too closely. He thought the family must have escaped the fire or had not been at home. O'Hara continued to the next house, where he met a man named Robertson. Robertson had no idea what had happened or where the Mackenzie family was. The two men sought assistance, reporting the matter to a magistrate, and started an inquiry into the fire and the family's whereabouts. On their way to the magistrate, they went to examine the ruins, and that's when the true horror of the Beaver Lake tragedy began to unfold. To understand the crime scene, it's important to explain the layout of the premises. Mackenzie's house was on the south side of the road, while the house Breen was to live in was slightly closer to the city on the north side. 
Across from Mackenzie's house stood a barn with another barn in the rear. Both barns were untouched by the fire, while both houses were burned to the ground. This made it clear that one house hadn't caught fire from the other, or the barn in front of Mackenzie's would have been burned too. O'Hara and Robertson entered the ruins of Mackenzie's house, where they discovered his money chest, unlocked and empty with the key still inside. It seemed probable that Mackenzie had been robbed. They continued on to the home of Magistrate William Hawks, Esquire of Black River, and returned with him to the Mackenzie's. A more thorough search revealed charred remains of bones near the fireplace, believed to be those of Mackenzie's wife and children, but the remains were so scant that it was hard to determine their age or gender. In the other house they found part of a body, presumed to be Mackenzie's, based on buttons and a brace buckle found nearby. The remains were so badly burned that they could have easily been mistaken for charred wood. Very reminiscent of the Donnelly family massacre. Very much so. It's really interesting that we've talked a few times about historic cases like this where fire is used to cover up the actual crime. <laughs> I think listeners are going to be like, those Canadians up there, they sort of in, slaughter entire families and then burn everything down. Yeah. Um, what's interesting, though, is... The Donnelly story mm -hmm. uh, was taught in school. Yeah. Right? And, it, and a lot of people know about it. But this one, not so much. Well, this one, there's a, it's really difficult to find a lot about it. I used, essentially, there's a book about the trial, pretty much word for word, everything that happened in the trial. So that's what I used to disseminate out this, uh, this story, this podcast. And then there's a great video on YouTube by the New Brunswick Historical Society. Okay. And then there's also stuff on the University of New Brunswick website. But right. other than that, those are really the only three sources. And I've been thinking about why. Mm. And it, it's sort of like with the, the Donnelly story, if, you, if the listeners haven't heard that episode, go go listen to it. Yeah. Mike did a great job on that. And that was sort of more tied, like it was an entire town, essentially, mm -hmm. that mob, mobbed them, right? Yeah, it was more about... Protestant and Catholic. Yeah. And this seems to be more about a Catholic killing a Protestant, but just it, to get money. It's about the money. Yeah. yeah. By the time the crime scene examination concluded, it was after four o'clock, and the investigators were horrified. It was hard to tell if this was an accident or a crime. The circumstances were entirely new to the simple country folk of the district, and immediate action was not to be expected, though it might have been necessary for justice. Everyone returned home, and it wasn't until the next day, Monday, that the magistrate and others involved reported the details to the authorities in St. John. On Tuesday, the coroner and a jury assembled in Misbeck to view the scene. However, the coroner's handling of the case was criticized by the public and the daily press as he allowed anyone interested to hear about the evidence and details of the crimes. Investigators gathered evidence on Tuesday and over the next few days, and fingers were pointed toward Breen and the Slavins. Mrs. Slavin was arrested on Monday evening by Captain Skular, chief of the city police. He suspected her family's involvement as all the male members of the family had disappeared and their whereabouts were unknown. Mrs. Slavin, a tall, thin Irish woman, spoke cautiously at the inquest, carefully weighing her words. It was difficult to get her to answer the coroner's questions. She did not want to implicate her husband or eldest son. 
Mrs. Slavin, under intense questioning, finally revealed that the man named Breen, whom her husband had met at the waterworks and worked with on the railway, had been staying at her house for just over two weeks. She claimed that Breen had not been at the house for ten days until the previous Sunday morning when he arrived for a shirt she had washed for him. He arrived between seven and eight o'clock, looking neither soiled nor bloody, and left soon after breakfast, saying he was going to Boston or Woodstock. She swore he hadn't been there the entire previous week and knew nothing of the fire or fate of the Mackenzie family. Her son, John Slavin, a boy of 12, though he claimed to be 10, proved provided more details. He knew Hugh Breen from the old country and described his dress and appearance. Breen stayed at their house for five weeks and was there every night the previous week except Thursday, proving that his mother had lied. On Saturday morning, he overheard Breen and his father and his brother discussing Mackenzie's wealth. They left for town and returned after nightfall with the bag. He wasn't sure what it contained. They whispered among themselves, and John saw a long purse with steel beads and a yellow watch in Breen's hands. The next morning, he saw Breen with a pocketbook full of gold and notes. Breen went into town and returned early Monday morning, saying he had been to town and mentioned Mackenzie's house was burned. John saw them in the bushes near the house and later found them at a camp a short distance away. They then sent him home and he didn't see his father or Breen again, but he did see his brother Pat on Tuesday morning. Two other witnesses, Mr. McGuire and Mr. Ramsey, stated that a man matching Breen's description had been seen with a large purse and appeared to have a large amount of money. Breen had also slept at Ramsey's house on Sunday night. The involvement of Breen, known by different aliases, and his connections to the Slavin family added layers of complexity to the case. The community was gripped by fear and fascination waiting for the next twist in this horrifying tale. The authorities were now tasked with piecing together these disparate clues into a coherent narrative that could lead to the capture and conviction of those responsible. The pressure was mounting, and the eyes of the province were fixed on this unfolding drama eager for justice to be served. Mrs. Slavin was questioned again and stuck to her story that Breen was not at her house on Saturday night or any night during the previous week and that he was not there on Monday morning. She was, of course, unaware of what young John had told the police. A man named Quinn came forward with a curious observation. On Sunday, he saw young Patrick and John Slavin playing in the road with a piece of money. Pat showed it to him, revealing it to be a sovereign, and even offered it to him, boasting that he had more money than ever before. Quinn refused, and after he walked away, he turned back to see Pat take about five sovereigns out of his pocket, a substantial sum for such a poor family. John Slavin was questioned again, and when confronted with Quinn's statement, he revealed more details about the night of the crime. He overheard the three men, Breen, his father, and his brother, discussing the murder and their loot. He heard how Breen had killed Mackenzie with four blows of an axe, killed Mrs. Mackenzie, and, quote, set the children. They dragged the bodies together and set fire to the house, with Pat holding the candle while his father searched the house. Breen was the one who killed them all, he said. They examined their clothes for blood and divided 50 sovereigns that night. On Thursday evening, two men named Haggerty, father and son, were questioned by the chief of police, Captain Schoolar. Bernard Haggerty, the son and nephew to Slavin, last saw the two Slavins and Breen on Thursday morning near his father's house. The elder Haggerty, married to Slavin's sister, said the three suspects had come to his house late on Monday night 
expressing fear that they would be suspected of the crime. They spoke of Mackenzie's house being burned and the family killed, but denied any involvement. They said they planned to go to the United States until the heat died down. Bernard also described how he visited the men in a crude camp in the woods near his father's house, telling them they were suspected of the murder, but advising them to come forward if they were innocent. He brought them bread and promised to return that night, but was arrested before he could go back. Bernard's statement was consistent, though he was reluctant to share information about the men's whereabouts. Police demanded that Bernard lead them to the camp. He agreed and led Captain Scular, two policemen and others, to the camp in the woods nearby. The place was about 16 miles from the city, and Policeman Marshall was assigned at guard Haggerty's house to prevent anyone from going ahead and alerting the suspects. The posse was within a few meters before the suspects became aware of their presence. Breen and the elder Slavin were seized without resistance, appearing broken down by exposure and lack of food. Young Patrick Slavin Jr. initially escaped but was brought back by threats. Initially, investigators found blankets, an axe, and a shovel in the camp. A search for stolen property revealed hidden valuables. Mr. Scular and his party found various items including clothing and a gold watch concealed under moss and fallen leaves nearby. The watch was identified as belonging to Mr. Ross, who had given it to Mackenzie for safekeeping. Eighty-nine and a half sovereigns were recovered, with the prisoners stating they took no paper money. The elder Slavin was brought into the city around eight o'clock, causing intense excitement. The others arrived later, showing the place where they had concealed a valise and a bag. All three men were lodged in the watch house. The Beaver Lake tragedy had reached a critical turning point with the arrest of the accused. The community's shock and horror were now mixed with anticipation as the legal process would unfold. The physical and testimonial evidence had painted a grim picture, but many questions remained. What had driven these men to such a heinous act, and how would they defend themselves? And what would be the final judgment in a case that had captured the attention of an entire province? The next chapters in this story would be written in the courtroom where the pursuit of justice would continue, guided by the law, but shadowed by the dark and unsettling nature of the crime itself. We'll be back after a quick break. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. And we are back. Matthew, thoughts so far on this episode? How did they think they were going to get away with this? That's a great question. (laughs) Well, Breen 
had introduced to him, well, Breen had introduced himself to Mackenzie as Williams, which is what caused the confusion at the beginning, but he was soon identified as Hugh Breen. Once police could compare notes with witnesses who identified him as the man who had called himself Williams. People are overheard talking about it. People, suddenly people have money. I mean, it's not very bright. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> it's, it's not at all. No, they weren't the sharpest tools in the shed. Nope. Patrick Slavin Sr., Patrick Slavin Jr., and Hugh Breen were charged with the brutal murder of Robert McKenzie and his family. At their arraignment, the courtroom was filled with tension as the prisoners were brought in, according to witnesses, looking less wretched than when they were arrested, but still bearing the weight of their crimes. Breen, his face flushed, and after a moment's hesitation when asked about his guilt in the crimes, answered with a strong, clear voice, Guilty! Those present were shocked by the word, and silence fell over the room. The judge repeatedly asked if Breen understood the consequences of his plea, to which he firmly responded that he was guilty and reconciled to die for his crimes. His guilty plea was recorded, and Breen was removed from the courtroom, leaving everyone present horror-struck. On the other hand, Patrick Slavin Sr. wriggled and hesitated, finally stating, I could not say that I am clear of it. The court recorded a plea of not guilty for him, and he declined any legal counsel. An interesting twist occurred when Patrick Slavin Sr. was arraigned on two additional indictments for the murder of Mrs. McKenzie and a male child. Despite his dogged and obstinate appearance, he pleaded guilty, leaving the spectators in utter amazement. The younger Slavin, 15, pleaded not guilty, and the court assigned him a lawyer. With the others having pleaded guilty, young Patrick was left to face justice alone, his trial symbolizing a community struggle to come to terms with an unprecedented and brutal crime. The trial of young Patrick became the focal point of public attention, with crowds gathering near the courthouse and the courtroom filled to capacity. The jury selection was challenging, with many potential jurors admitting they had formed opinions about the case. After about an hour's delay, a jury was selected, and the Solicitor General, Charles Waters, opened the case. He urged the jury to set aside any preconceived opinions and try the case impartially. He then laid out the evidence they were prepared to offer, showing how the plot had been conceived, executed, and discovered. He emphasized that the prisoner was guilty as those who committed the murder, even if he did not kill anyone himself. The public safety was at stake, and the jury must remember that if such deeds went unpunished, no one would be safe. William Reed, James Robinson, and William Hawks provided detailed descriptions of the crime scene. They recounted the discovery of the remains of Mackenzie and his family, the open iron chest, and the empty safe. They also identified items like Mrs. Mackenzie's steel bead purse, which Breen had in his possession. A neighbor of the Mackenzies, Mrs. Jeeves, identified specific items belonging to Mrs. Mackenzie found in the possession of the accused killers, and mentioned seeing the accused Breen, seeing young Patrick, Breen, and, Slav and Patrick Slavin Sr. near the crime scene. Patrick O'Hare, Patrick O'Hara described discovering the burned houses, finding the safe with ashes of bank bills, and seeing the accused in the area before the murder, along with Breen and Patrick Slavin Sr., who had already pled guilty to the murders. John Slavin, Patrick's younger brother, 
testified about the events surrounding the murder of the Mackenzie family. He detailed the movements of the accused, his brother Pat, his father, and Hugh Breen on the day of the crime. John described their return with the stolen items, counting 50 sovereigns in gold, and in a shocking twist, his father's confession to the killings. He also revealed the hiding of the stolen goods, his secret observation of his brother examining the gold, and the family dynamics, including his father's control and, and Patrick's lack of independence. His testimony painted a vivid picture of the night of the crime, subsequent activities of the accused, and their efforts to conceal their actions. John Haggerty testified about the visit of Slavin, his son, and Breen to his house on the night of the crime. He described their unexpected arrival during a stormy night and their explanation for being out, which included a fear of being suspected of the crime. Haggerty detailed their stay at his house, including their activities such as setting up their camp. George Scular, the chief of police, provided detailed testimony about the investigation into the murder of the Mackenzie family. He described discovering the burning of Mackenzie's place, finding the remains of bodies, and searching the ruins. His, in his inquiries led him to the house of Slavin, culminating in the dramatic capture of the Slavins and Breen at a camp at the head of Lake Lamond. Scolar recounted the chilling confession of young Slavin, who voluntarily described plan the planning of the robbery, the visit to Mackenzie's house, and the horrifying sounds of cries and screaming on the night of the tragedy. He also detailed the discovery of various items related to the crime, including yarn, children's blankets, socks, boots, knives, forks, and a gold watch. During cross-examination, Scolar clarified details about the prisoner's knowledge of the murder the cries heard from the house, the planning of the robbery, and the pocketbook found on, on Breen, and the discovery of the sovereigns. The pocketbook found on Green and the pocketbook found on Breen and the discovery of the sovereigns. Scular's, obs Scular's observations of young Slavin's demeanor led him to believe that the boy could know good, that the boy knew good from evil and was rather intelligent, painting a vivid and complex picture of the crime and the, in, and the individuals involved. And the, in, and the individuals involved. The last prosecution witness was Hugh Breen, who'd already pleaded guilty to murdering the Mackenzie family. He candidly described the events leading up to the murder, including the arrival at the Mackenzie place, the separation of the group, and the gruesome details of the murder. Quote, I went to the house and asked Mackenzie to come down as my wife had come. Mackenzie came down with a candle in his hand and old Slavin took the axe used for chopping wood out of my hand. His son was there. Slavin was in one place and Mackenzie in another. When Mackenzie came in, Slavin came out and said, She is on hand. This was referring to my wife's coming. He had the axe in his hand and hit Mackenzie on the breast. He said, Dead dogs tell no lies. He hit him on the breast with the back of the axe. Mackenzie groaned but did not speak. We put him into the cellar and old Slavin afterwards brought him up when we went to the upper house. Slavin asked me if I knew the house. He told me to go in and watch the door till he got a view of her. He then went in and Mrs. Mackenzie was sitting at the fire with a child in her arms. She asked if she was coming, meaning my wife. Slavin then struck her with the axe on the head and she fell over the edge of the stone. He struck her three blows on the body. He then struck the children who were standing around their mother crying. He killed the whole of them. The children cried, but Mrs. Mackenzie did not. Young Patrick and me took no direct part in the murder. 
We were standing in the porch at the time, end quote. Breen also detailed the items taken from the house and the subsequent actions of the accused, including setting the houses on fire. Breen's account provided further insights into the relationship between the Slavins, the planning of the crime, and the division of the money and his own actions after the crime. The defense began their portion of the trial by outlining the extraordinary nature of the case and the complexity of the evidence. They stated their intention to demonstrate that young Slavin was incapable of distinguishing between good and evil and was therefore not accountable for his actions in the case. They planned to argue that he was unaware of the intention to commit murder, believing the plan was only for robbery. Additionally, the defense expressed regret that Breen showed little signs of repentance and they expressed hope for his eventual change for the better. Already having pleaded guilty to his part in the crime, Patrick Slavin Sr., the accused's father, was brought by bailiffs into the courtroom, causing a stir among the audience. Despite being warned by the judge that he would have to answer incriminating questions, he was willing, he said, to tell the whole truth. Slavin Sr. described his son as tender-hearted and not a bad boy, but admitted that he had not taught him about prayers or attending public worship. He portrayed his son as lacking an understanding of right from wrong and admitted to treating him cruelly. Slavin Sr. then recounted the horrifying details of the planning and execution of the robbery and murder of the Mackenzies, admitting that he and Hugh Breen had plotted the crime and even discussed murdering others. Slavin described the murder of Effie and the children. Quote, We went up to the house, Breen and I. I was the first. Breen showed me the way. I did not take the axe. There was one at the door. Breen gave it to me. When I went in, I saw Mrs. Mackenzie sitting by the fire and the four children beside her. I struck her on the head ten or fifteen times. I killed them all. They did not cry much. We searched the house and found over a hundred pounds of money. It was myself that ransacked the chest. The money was in gold. It was also in a yellow bag, like the one in court. There was a purse also and portmanteau. The boy was knocking about, keeping watch. We had something to eat. We thought it best to set fire to the houses. Breen and I both did it. End quote. Slavin then described the division of money, emphasizing that his son did not know what was on the minds of his father and Breen. Slavin said young Patrick did not participate in the actual murder, emphasizing that he was only keeping watch on the road outside. George Tompkins, who was responsible for attending to the chaining of the prisoners, testified about his jailhouse observations of Patrick Slavin Jr. He described the boy as having a strange, foolish laugh and smile. He noted that attempts to impress upon him the gravity of his situation seemed to have little effect. Tompkins mentioned that the boy seemed uneducated and he had never been to church, even struggling to recite the Lord's Prayer, jumbling the words. Initially, the boy cried heartbreakingly when first put in irons, but Tompkins noted that since then, he saw no serious impression on him, suggesting a lack of understanding or emotional response to his circumstances. With witness testimony done, Mr. Kerr, the defense counsel, passionately addressed the jury claiming that Patrick Slavin Jr. was not capable of responsibility for the crime. He implored the jury to consider the boy's situation, emphasizing his friendliness and arguing that he was led astray by his wicked father, likening his influence to that of a dog being led. The defense focused on the boy's ignorance, simplicity, and inability to distinguish between right and wrong, arguing that he was not capable of malicious intent or mature judgment. They insisted there was no evidence of an unrestrained will on the boy's part, 
In a plea for mercy, the defense referenced community feelings about a past execution of another boy and urged the jury to consider their consciences in determining the fate of this poor child. In the Crown prosecution's closing arguments, the Solicitor General emphasized the unparalleled and barbaric nature of the crime, acknowledging the intense emotions it had stirred in the community. He praised the jury's attention to detail and urged them to scrutinize the boy's conduct rigorously, giving him the benefit of any doubt they might have. The prosecution stressed their commitment to justice, even calling painful witnesses, and emphasized the need to satisfy every person of the prisoner's guilt. The Solicitor General detailed evidence pointing to the boy's complicity, arguing that his conduct before, during, and after the crime demonstrated his involvement and capacity to participate. He dismissed the defense's plea of insanity or imbecility, I don't like that word, insisting that the evidence showed the boy's awareness and participation. He spoke of the enormity of the crime and the need for the law to be carried out, urging the jury to judge the case according to the law's strict and impartial requirements, considering the country's well-being. So he's saying, hang him. I is he? Though? Yeah, that's my question, right? Um, strict and impartial. Right. What I think he's doing... Uh, which is probably the best thing for a crown prosecutor to do, right. is telling people, don't let your emotions be your guide. Right. Let the evidence speak. Okay. You know what you've heard here. Okay. Essentially. I was, I was hearing that a little bit different of, mm -hmm. it just, the, the whole strict and impartial. Um, I think it's good. I think, I think I would, okay. I would prefer, uh, that's how typically juries are instructed today to make sure yeah, don't let your emotions get the best of you. Yeah. Make your judgment based on the actual facts of the case. I think what's happening here is my mind's running forward. Okay. In that um, he's 15. Yeah. He's not very bright. Interestingly, though, 15-year-olds, 16-year-olds are considered sort of less children than they are these days, I think. Right. I mean, you were pretty much an adult at 16. Then. Right. Yeah. But, um, and then, you know, there was hanging. So yeah. whenever I hear strict and impartial, you mm -hmm. know, me, you know, my stance on, on state sanctioned murder, right. um, I get nervous <laughs> yeah. for being strict. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. In his charge to the jury, Judge Parker read the evidence and became deeply moved by the horrific details of the crime. The emotional weight of the trial was evident as the description of the events brought tears to his eyes. This charge marked a significant moment in the proceedings, setting the stage for the jury's deliberation and reflecting on the profound impact the case had on all involved. The jury found Patrick Slavin Jr. guilty of the crime, but recommended mercy in their verdict. In his sentencing, Judge Parker detailed the evidence of Patrick's guilt and emphasized the brutality of the crime. Despite describing the prisoner's conduct as black and dark, the judge considered the greater guilt of the two other criminals involved and recommended mercy. While the formal sentence was for execution on March 4th, there was an expectation of compassion, giving hope that the boy's life would be spared, though not that he would be released back into the community. Young Patrick's death sentence was in fact later commuted to life behind bars. Years later, Patrick escaped from the penitentiary and fled across the border to Maine but was later recaptured. During the sentencing of Hugh Breen and Patrick Slavin Sr., the courtroom was filled to capacity. 
the judge recounted the deliberate planning and heinous nature of the murders, expressing his horror at the crime and urging the prisoners to seek mercy from God. Both were sentenced to death and were to be hanged on December 11th. They maintained a firm demeanor throughout the proceedings. Breen remained silent while Slavin Sr. expressed his satisfaction with the judgment. Hugh Breen hanged himself in his cell before his death sentence could be carried out. Breen was discovered suspended by an aged yellow silk handkerchief tied to a shelf. However, the location was not high enough for an effective hanging unless he raised his feet to apply pressure on his own throat. He was determined to go on his own terms. The Carlton Sentinel and other newspapers reported on the execution of Patrick Slavin Sr. To paraphrase, on the appointed day of Patrick Slavin Sr.'s execution, a large crowd gathered in front of the jail in the early morning. Right on time, at 10 o'clock, the prisoner, Slavin, ascended the platform along with the High Sheriff, Charles Johnston, and the Catholic priest, Reverend Sweeney. The mayor, George Blatch, acting deputy sheriff, and several other officials were also present. The High Sheriff set up the noose while Constable Pigeon covered the prisoner's face with a cap. As Slavin stood on the drop, he appeared to listen to or join in prayer with Reverend Sweeney. Shortly after, the sheriff cut the support and the drop fell, causing almost instantaneous death. The execution was solemnly conducted with the necessary preparations and significant attendance of officials and spectators. Would you go see a public hanging if we had them? No. A lot of people would say, yep, yeah, sure, I would go. But welcome to PTSD is what I say. You know, like, if you have ever, like I have, seen a person die, and mm. I've seen it happen a couple of times, yeah, it is not something, regardless of the situation, that will not affect you in some way. I can't, I can't. So this is fantasy land because we <laughs> yeah. don't have it. Right. Um, I kind of feel like I would go not for the spectacle. Mm-hmm but because I'm in a society that does this. Right. And I would feel like I need to watch and feel it. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and try to like show a smiling face at somebody who's about to get killed. Okay. And they can, you know, uh, it's hard. To me, that would pro probably traumatize me more. <laughs> I, I know, but it, it's, if, if, if a society does this, it's, there's... Imagine if everyone in America or any other country that has the death penalty mm -hmm. was forced to watch it live or on TV every time it happened. Do you think it would change people? I don't know if that's the right way to go about it, to make everybody kind of responsible for it in a way. Yeah. Because it is really out of sight, out of mind now. Yeah. You know, some, whatever they do, electrocute you, hang you, inject you, mm -hmm. some official just comes out later and says it's done. Right. So they have cameras in court. Right. Yeah. Like as a society, and not just the US, any country, it's like, hey, you all have to watch this. This is what we do. I bet you it changed pretty quickly, Mike. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty, I don't know. It's, uh, it's not something that I think. Sorry. Is I wasn't really dark there. <laughs> yeah, well, for sure. <laughs> like, but I, but I think it's something that, you know, to think about. But honestly, yeah. No, I don't, I don't think people need to see that. It would be horrible, but that's my point because it is horrible, mm -hmm. right? I, I, somebody sent me the video of Saddam Hussein's execution. Somebody sent me a video of somebody getting stabbed and dying oh. that I didn't realize. Yeah. Um, because it's cut out of the news and I, 
it still freaks me out every time I think about the fact right. that I saw it. Because yeah. I, I pushed play not knowing what it was going to be. Yeah, it's not good. I don't like that, but I, I don't know. To me, it's a propaganda tool to get people to stop doing a capital punishment. <laughs> you, your your intentions are good, I guess. Yeah. But, <laughs> yeah, I, I don't I don't really want to. Yeah. I want to traumatize anybody else. <laughs> but this is what you do, people. Yeah. This is what we vote for. Well, not in Canada. Right. But no, I'm talking about in Saudi Arabia or the US or um, do they have do they have capital punishment in South Africa? I don't know. They don't in the UK. I don't think anyone anywhere in Europe. Well, <laughs> anyway, yeah, let's that's just, a happy part of, of the story. After Slavin's execution, his widow, who was involved in helping the murderers flee and hide the loot, drew some attention when she remarried only weeks after. Mm. Her new husband was also someone with a criminal past, having been previously convicted of a violent sexual assault. Wow. So, yeah, I guess, you know, well, I, I, maybe she just liked quote-unquote bad boys or something who knows i don't know but it sounds pretty crazy to me it's very crazy and that's it for dark poutine episode 281 beaver lake tragedy the mckenzie murders find a fresh take on a fall getaway to wilmington north carolina and beaches enjoy hiking trails in a state park fresh seafood with a side of live music and fall festivals galore then live it up along the Riverwalk in wilmington's historic downtown with three island beaches carolina curie and wrightsville and a vibrant downtown you get the best of the carolina coast all in one place plan your fall getaway at wilmington and beaches vacation.com i'm samantha cole host of the new season of understood the pornhub empire over the course of four episodes, I'll tell you how a horny YouTube knockoff in Canada came to dominate the porn world, only to shatter their cheeky reputation in a massive scandal. The Pornhub Empire is a new season of Understood from the CBC. Available now wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. It's time for voicemails. You can leave us a message at 1-877-327-5786 or 1-877-DARK-PTN. We'd love to hear from you. Let's see who called us this week. Alrighty, it is time for some voicemails. Let's have a listen to our first one. I wonder what this is about. Hi, Mike and Matthew. It's Lacey from Calgary. Um... Many time caller, long time listener, but I just wanted to say that uh, the latest episode on um, Jacob Sansom and uh, Morris Cardinal it it broke my heart. You know, it it's such a waste, a waste of really incredible people. Just hearing about them, they sounded so amazing and so full of knowledge and. You know, to know that he was writing a book and he never got to live that dream. And that's been a dream of mine. And I'm actually working on writing a book, too. So it's just it just hit hit me so hard. And it just breaks my heart that there's still so much racism and and violence for for no no damn reason. Anyway, um, 
you guys always do an amazing job. So uh, thank you. And it's, it's wonderful how you honor the victims and really help us to get to know them because, you know, it, they were just such great people. And I'm, I'm truly sorry for the family. Anyway, you take care. Bye. Well, thank you very much. We like hearing from Lacey. Yeah, and we are going to hear from Sarah, Jake's wife, at some point. Okay. Uh, she and I have been talking behind the scenes, and I have a feeling you folks would really enjoy a bit of an update uh, from her about things. So, yeah. I It, I, it would be good to yeah, hear from her. I, I think so, too. And as far as um, talking about the victims, something that I know we're in the voicemail portion now, but struck me about this episode that we just did was that the chi the names of the children and uh, Robert McKenzie's wife are More, just lost to time. Lost to time. Lost to time. It's, it was like, I mean, I'm sure if I would have dug really, really hard, I might have found it, mm. uh, but I, I didn't. You couldn't, yeah. Yeah, I, I couldn't. Yeah. With what you're looking at, you're like, where are they? I can't yeah. find them. I'm, I'll have to fly to a library somewhere, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But anywho, let's listen to our next voicemail. Hey, guys. It's uh, Scott calling from Chatham, Ontario. I got put onto your podcast by actually searching podcasts in Chatham, Ontario in there, and you guys covered a story that I did not know about. Um, just wanted to say what an awesome job you guys do. I'm addicted now. I commute every day between Chatham to Sarnia, and I work often uh, at the Windsor location as well. Anyways, um, just wanted to recommend a case for you guys, and it is another Chatham case that affected me personally, and it is the case, uh, the murder of Danny Daniel Miller, um, and... He was, I think, six or seven years old, um, and it was a gang-related initiation as far as I remember, um, and it would have happened in about 1993 or 1994 in Chatham, Ontario. Anyways, thanks for all your help um, on those long commutes, and uh, you guys are absolutely awesome. Keep up the good work, and uh, yeah, go shit in your hat, which is something I also heard for the first time. Listening to your podcast like a few others. So, thank you. Take care, guys. Bye bye. Awesome. Thanks, Scott. I just Googled what he was talking about. What mm. a horrific thing. It, it, I find cases with kids really, really tough. I'm not sure what it is about. Yeah, you know, I think it's their innocence. And we don't do them. Yeah, we just don't cover them. All. They're too hard. It is too, <laughs> it is too hard. Uh, but at the same time, you know, nobody deserves. Any of yeah, you know, it, I don't know what it is like. Children, I, I emotionally, it just really rips me to shreds. We might, however, cover that one because I, I was looking at it and it looks super interesting. I want to know if, um, if Scott goes to that uh, diner in Chatham that we talked about. Which one was that? What was it called? It was like the, uh, the Star Something Diner. Mm -hmm. Yeah, maybe he'll. I want to go to Chatham now. Okay. Me too. <laughs> well, let's listen to another voicemail. Hi, uh, I just listened to your uh, your show on Spotify. I didn't know it existed, and I specifically um, uh, watched it 
the, the show about the, the double murder on the Jean Cartier Bridge in Montreal, so I don't know the number of that uh, episode, but uh, just wanted to say thank you for the way you approached this, uh, this story and this murder case. I'm, um, I'm in the family of Chantal Dupont, and I've heard and read all of the things that exist on that uh, story, and it's not always, how do I say that? A lot of times people talk about it in a way that they're just like shocked by the way the Dupont family forgave, uh, you know, Norma Guérin and, and, and uh, the other murder. And you approached it in a very humane way and a very, uh, with a lot of empathy. Thank you for that. And, uh, like I said, it's, I've heard lots of podcasts and YouTube videos about that. And most of the time, they don't focus on the murder itself and on the persons that were shot out and uh, uh, Maurice Martin. And they just focus on, like, the shocking part on how they forgave, like, the murder. And, yeah. So I just want to say thank you for the way you covered that uh, subject, and it's uh, really appreciated to uh, and you know very uh, yeah just it was it was real well done. So thank you guys and uh, keep it up. It's a good show. Thank you. Have a good day. Wow. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate that. And and. Th- Talking about forgiveness, I, I've talked about it a number of times on the show and how, you know, forgiveness isn't for the person that is on the other side of the, the coin. Forgiveness is for the, the people who have to live with what has happened. So the family, mm. you know, like if they can forgive the person who uh, killed their loved one, they're free. They're free of it. Yeah. They don't, they don't have to feel that anger, that rage, that, you know, hate anymore. Yeah. yeah. I, I just, I just, I love the idea of forgiveness. One of the most moving episodes of forgiveness I ever saw during a court proceeding was during the, uh, Gary Ridgeway. he was the Green River killer. Right. As he was, uh, doing his, after he pled guilty, right. he had to listen to the families, victim impact statements. And there was a lot of people saying, I hate you, burn in hell. Screaming and yelling. Screaming and yelling. But there was, and Ridgeway sat there stone-faced. Yeah. Until one man whose daughter had been murdered came and said, I forgive you. Mm. I, you know, and the way he talked about forgiveness and why he was forgiving him. And Ridgeway started to cry. Hmm. It was really, really fascinating. It, it, uh, it did more than the yelling. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. It's always interesting to have somebody who's a member of a family who we've, uh, whose case with that we've covered. It's... And what she was saying there, Mike, I think I've said this before. I don't know if I said it on air, if we, if you will, or just to you is, um, doing this podcast like i'm i'm kind of naturally a compassionate person in a lot of ways but doing this has um taught me even more 
right? It's weird that doing a true crime podcast um, teaches you about teaches you about compassion. Yeah. <laughs> I agree. I, it's I, so strange. I, it is so strange. I never thought I would get this get out get the stuff I'm getting out of this mm-hmm. for doing this show. Yep, I've yeah. said it before. It's it has helped me grow as a person too. So. We have one more voicemail, so let's have a listen. Oh, hey, fellas, it's me, the devil, just calling to say a quick hello and make a comment on the Richmond Hill murders episode you did about the killing of Thomas Kinnear and uh, his housekeeper, Nancy Montgomery. You know, contrary to popular belief and his contentions that I made him do it, I can tell you that it was not me. I didn't make James McDermott do it. Nor did I make Grace Marks do it either. I just want to be clear about that. I mean, come on, man. I've been dealing with these types of accusations since, well, <laughs> forever. And normally it was me. But this? Really? What do you think I am? Just to be clear, I never told James to do that. He did it on his own. People seem to think that just because I'm the devil, they can blame me for all the sick and depraved shit they do. James McDermott was a monster. I mean, what kind of person would do that? And furthermore, what kind of person would tell you to do that? Yuck. Also, Matthew, you pointed out that Grace had lots of credibility. Yeah, she's just innocent. She was exploited by uh, James McDermott, and that's not right. Anyways, uh, it's the devil signing off. Um, Before I go, though, uh, send my love to Steve. Give him scritches there. Um, See you in hell, boys. Oh, dear. So yeah, we've we've had Satan calling. I we I've never heard such a compassionate devil before. But uh, well, thank you. No, thank you very much. And I'm I'm wondering um, if Steve someday will will meet uh, his uh, three headed dog down oh, the, there. The Hound of Hades. Yeah. Yeah. Could. What was his name? What was his name? I, Succubus or something? No, Succubus no, is, a, that... is a lady demon that comes and oh, yeah. does nasty things to you. <laughs> Incubus is the male version. Anyway. Uh, yeah, well, thank you for all of your calls. There are more, and we're glad that people are calling in. It seemed like people forgot us for a while, but now they're calling in again, so thank you. That's it for this week's voicemails. Again, you can leave us one at one 327 5786 or one 877 We'd love to hear from you, even if it is just to say hi and to tell us to go shit in our hats. If you're stumped for what to chat with us about, a quick story is welcome. All right, as far as PayPal and Donut Money Donor mm. goes, we have donors go. We have a few this week. Uh, first up, from Brooklyn, New York. Brooklyn. Brooklyn. Catherine James. Hey, Catherine, thanks. Thank you, Catherine. Yeah, that, that's really nice. I, I love it that when we uh, get through to an American or two, you know, because... I don't feel like our show has much penetration into the States, but whatever. I'm, I'm glad somebody from Brooklyn is listening. Yeah. I still haven't gone to New York in my life, but I really, really want to. So I think, I think Catherine, yeah. I'm going to have a theme today. Okay. So she's a roller, roller derby person. Okay. What's her roller derby? Clotherin Carnage. Clotherin Carnage. Yeah. Wow. And uh, what does she do for work when she's that, not roller that, derby? That's her job. Oh, she's a roller derby queen professional <laughs> well there you she's go she's the queen of roller derby in brooklyn the next person that's uh 
sent us some money is actually from Austin. We'll talk about them in a second. Okay. Um, well, we have Lauren Rushton. Yeah, from Austin. Do you know this for sure? No. Okay. So Austin, <laughs> Mike's looking at me confused. Austin, Texas? Austin, Texas, which is actually I the... cousins there. Roller Derby capital is Austin, Texas, just so you know. Austin is sort of an oasis in Texas, too. Uh, it, there's, it's not quite as uh, red. It, it's a little more blue. I can tell you stories about Austin. I'm sure you can. Mm. But uh, so Lauren... Uh, is is there doing roller derby stuff too? She is. She's 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 the Austin equivalent of Clothrin, mm-hmm. right? And she's a slamming Laurinator. Oh boy. Yeah. <laughs> well, there you go. Well, that's kind of fun. Thank you both. Yes, thank you. And we do have somebody else. Uh, will this one? We usually, I don't think, I think this is one of our very first from Virginia, mm. and it's from a place called Midlothian. 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 Midlothian, Virginia. Wow. And it's Christina E. Wilson. Okay. Make sure you say the E. Make sure I say the E? Yes, Christina E. Wilson. Chain reaction Christina. Oh, wow. E. So... <laughs> So they're all like members of, uh, they've probably all met each other too on the roller derby circuit. It's a whole circuit. Yeah. Right? It's a whole circuit. And they actually like, it started, I think with Christina mm-hmm. and they, they talked about comp podcasts. They're like, that's why they're all, um, writing in and, and helping us out. Wow. Yeah. Uh, well, <laughs> that's it for patrons, but we do have some donut money donors this week. Donut money donors. First up, we have Miriam M. Or first up, we have Mar- Marina N. We do have some donut money. <laughs> we do have some donut money donors this week. I have pizza on the brain. I'm really tired. And you got tongue-tied there. I got tongue-tied. So Marina M. sent us some money and, uh, I'm really happy that you did that. Thanks, Marina. Thank you, Marina. Where's Marina from, Matthew? She is from America. Okay. I don't know which city, but this is actually Marina from uh, Marina and the Diamonds. Okay. I am not a robot. You know that song? No, I don't. Look up Marina and the Diamonds. I will listen to it later on. I used to listen to that song all the time. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, so she's a a superstar, so she's from America in general. Wow. Yeah. Well, there you have it. Well, thank you. (laughs) Thank you, Marina, for uh, coming down to our level. Well, yeah, really. (laughs) A singer. That is a real singer, but I'm making the story. Okay. Okay. Next, we have Stacy Mm -hmm. Rug. Ragotska, Stacy Ragotska, Stacy Ragotska, Ragotska, get some yummy donuts from us, Stacy and Nick. Stacy and Nick. Yeah, well, thank you, Stacy and Nick. Wait, that that will probably go toward the pizza that we just had. Yeah. So yeah, we'll have some yummy donuts again sometime soon. Stacy and Nick are from Portland. Portland, Oregon. Yeah. Yeah. What What do they do in Portland? They own a rental bike company. Oh, there's a lot of that kind yeah. of thing there. Yeah. Have you ever watched the show Portlandia? It's called Stacy and Mike's. Stacy and Nick. Sorry, Stacy and Nick's 
Bicycle Emporium. Well, there you go. I saw a little bit of Portlandia, but I don't know it very well. I like Portland. Uh, I've, I've been to Voodoo Donuts in Portland, and they make this. There's a lot of great donut places there. But Voodoo Donuts, downtown Portland, makes an amazing grape Kool-Aid donut. It is just to die Grape Kool-Aid? Oh my goodness gracious me. I was eating non-infused grape gummies today. Oh, that sounds nice. Doing a little taste test. I like grape. I like grape much better than orange. (laughs) My mother... (laughs) Remember that commercial? No. My birth mom said... uh, when we first met, she said, what's your favorite popsicle? This is Diane. Yeah. yeah. And I said, grape. And she said, I know that. And I was like, well, how do you know that? And she said, well, that's what I ate when I was pregnant with you. <laughs> grape popsicles. Yeah. She was craving grape popsicles all the time. My favorite was the rock, rocket popsicle. Oh, those were good. Yep. I used to sell those on my Dickie D ice cream bike. Did you have a Dickie I did. D? I peddled one of those. Aww. Ding, ding, ding. Yeah, I was the ice cream bike guy. Cool. And the kids used to chase me and throw rocks. Of course they did. Of course. No ice cream for you, little brats. <laughs> exactly. Well, thank you to our Donut Money donors. Thank and you, guys. our patrons. We love you. We love you. Thanks to all our patrons and Donut Money donors, past and present, for your generosity. It helps to keep the show going. You can become a patron of Dark Poutine at patreon.com slash darkpoutine. For a one-time donation, you can send us donut money via PayPal using our email address, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. If you don't already subscribe to the show, it would mean a lot if you did. You can easily find Dark Poutine on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. If you haven't gotten yours yet, my book, Murder, Madness, and Mayhem, is available to order via a link on the Dark Poutine website. And speaking of darkpoutine.com, please check it out for show notes and other cool stuff. We'd appreciate it if you took the time to give Dark Poutine a like or a follow on Facebook and Instagram. Most importantly, thank you for listening. And tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. And that's it for this episode. So, until next time. Don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Yeah, because there's enough of those already. Oh, so many. Her name is Elspeth. Elspeth Tassioni. You know her as the offbeat but brilliant defense attorney from The Good Wife and The Good Fight. You've been a very busy little bee. Buzz, buzz. Now she's in New York with the NYPD. This is very different. Better. But still using her unconventional ways to find the truth. You're trying to sniff me, Miss Tassioni? <laughs> Elspeth, new series Thursdays on Global. Stream on Stack TV.